American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Welcome to another episode of. American Timelines. I'm Amy, and that's Joe. And we are humans, American humans. Yes. And we have thoughts and feelings and flaws. We're not perfect. No. Okay? Definitely, definitely not. Um, and we are going to talk about 1955 today. Yeah, we're <clears> still in 1955. We're turning a corner. We're getting towards the fall. We're going to talk about... September and October of 1955. That's correct. September and October. This will be, I think, episode 185. Wow. You believe that? Wow. You believe that? Wow. And we're picking up some listeners, picking up some steam. Are we? Yeah, we are. Nice. And I think some of that is thanks to Magic Mind, which is oh, nice. that beverage yeah. that I have enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, it's got all these new tropics. It's got this stuff that, you know, helps me curb my caffeine intake, so I'm not so jittery. It's natural. It tastes pretty good. It's a little green shake. It takes a second to drink. And those folks found me, and they said, hey, yeah, we think you'll like this, and I do like it. It's delicious, and you can use my code, my discount code, ATL. Uh, go to the following website. <laughs> insert website here insert website here <laughs> at www.magicmind.co slash ATL and the discount code is ATL for American Timelines and you can get up to 40% off nice it's crazy it's a crazy deal so you gotta get it it's a subscription thing and you'll like it I think so you guys should check it out alright but thanks to them we've kind of boosted our you know, they're sponsoring us, so I'm, I'm advertising the podcast more. We're getting more listeners, so right. it's a whole cycle. So thanks, everybody. It's thanks a menstrual cycle? Listening. Yep, it's a menstrual cycle. Speaking of menstrual cycles. September of 1955. No, I'm not. I'm concerned about the state of our 2022. Right. Yeah, Amy is upset. I'm upset. We're all upset about the overturning. Mm-hmm. Of Roe v. Wade. Yeah. It's just, it's not going to stop with that either. So that's the other piece of the puzzle, you know. Yeah. But anyway, 1955 Yeah, so we do this to escape all the horrible awfulness of society. So let's, uh, we can be sad, it's okay, and we are going to rise up and it'll, there's something will come to a head. But let's jump into the timeline because people aren't here to listen to us be political. Probably. Probably not. Um, and, and did you know that in September of 1955, mm-hmm. uh, in Italy, uh, there was a Roman shoemaker who designed something called defense shoes, complete with spurs on their toes and heels to kick away sex pests. 
uh, <laughs> to protect young girls from the street. Oh my God. Yeah, they had, and you can look at them online. They got a little sharp spike on the end, on the toe. Yeah. And on the heel. And then you could like, just yeah, kick a guy right in the nuts. Just right in the nuts and just rip open their scrotum. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, and now it's time for What Would a Nine-Year-Old Boy Say? This, ladies and gentlemen, is my nine-year-old nephew, Calhoun Jack. Let's hear what he says. So that's probably the reason why girls kick people all the time. That's where it probably originated from. It might be. But um, <laughs> that, prob- that I think, is a good problem-solving skill. But was it, was it really necessary? I don't really think so. <laughs> you, don't think, you don't think they needed those shoes? No. I don't, you don't see anybody with spikes on their heels and toes anymore, do you? Yeah. It was pretty bad back then, though. I mean, catcalling. Yeah. You know, even when I was growing up, catcalling was bad in the nineties, in, in the early sixties, right? No, in ah. the yeah, late eighties or nineties, yeah. and all that. It was pretty bad. But talking about nineteen fifty-five, it was like that was. Yeah, police at the time actually re- referred to the men who harassed young women as parrots. Because the girls said that they kept repeating the same silly phrase all the time. Yep. Like say hey, same, baby. Hey, baby. Yeah, stuff like that. Like, yeah. Ooga, ooga, <laughs> all that stuff. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the cartoons were doing that. Like, right. their eyes would pop out and their tongues fall out. Right. Anyway, reviews of the shoes suggested that such a girl who would purchase these defense shoes would be publicly displaying her vanity, that her own good looks would encourage pursuit. Mm. And that the wise boy would give the spur-shod girl a wide berth because of the unmistakable evidence of spurs on the heart and probably the tongue. Well, you know, in um, Africa, yeah, there's okay. a there there's some kind of a insert that they invented that has teeth around it, and women stick inside it inside their vaginas. Yes, so that Sweet. and it, it it prevents it deters rape. rape yeah, yeah. So imagine that. Imagine a world where that has to happen. Gives new meaning to the term, bitch, you got teeth in your vag. Yep. I don't know what. Is that a thing I'm not sure that's a thing anybody (laughs) says. Well, September 2nd, 1955 was a Friday. Okay. And according to the BBC, under the guidance of Dr. Humphrey Osmond, TV presenter Christopher Mayhew ingested 400 milligrams of mescaline hydrochloride Whoa. and allowed himself to be filmed as part of a panorama special for BBC, That and it was never broadcast. It was probably never broadcast because he had a great time and he nothing terrible yeah, happened. Yeah. Well, this guy was a British member of Parliament, and he, he did it because the drug was legal at the time, and the experiment was... Uh, supervised as part of a wider public debate about psychedelic drugs following the publication of The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley. Mm. Uh, But yeah, mescaline was put on a banned list of drugs in the UK because of fears of its potential impact on mental health. But yeah, I I didn't really see why they they stopped. I didn't really look too deep into it, but Mm -hmm. never aired. And I, I did see a cool thing at uh, a place called Caveat in Manhattan that does cool, nerdy programming, they did a thing mm-hmm. where some performers, some comedians, I think, did a bunch of LSD or something, and they filmed themselves, you know, and they kind of showed it as a presentation at the club, kind of 
one time. You'd have to that would have to be so heavily edited. Because yeah. I mean, people are a mess when oh, they're. Oh yeah, it was very when they're tripping on LSD. It was edited, edited down. They just sit there on the couch for four four hours and stare at the wall. Yeah, well, there was like a a professor or somebody talking about you know kind yeah. of narrating what was going on. At the oh concert, yeah. So, and then on Saturday, September third, nineteen fifty-five, Little Richard records a hit song, "Tutti Fruity" in New Orleans. Tutti Fruity, all Rudy. And it wasn't. Released until October, but this is when he recorded it. Okay. Let's see what Calhoun Jack thinks about Tutti Fruity, shall we? What do you think about that? I think if it was made in the 1950s, right? Yep, 1955. I think that yep. was a good song. It probably cheered lots of people who were down at that time. And it probably made people rise up and what overcome that time oh cool all right that's good so tutti frutti you know is an italian phrase meaning all fruits did oh, you know that oh no i did not uh so this was written by little richard and dorothy labastri mm-hmm. uh and dorothy labastri really just kind of cleaned up little richard's lyrics because these weren't that's not the original lyrics, apparently. Um, according to uh, The Life and Times of Little Richard, The Quasar of Rock by Charles White in 1942, the original lyrics, uh, in which Tutti Frutti referred to a homosexual man, That's what I wonder. was Tutti Frutti, good booty. Oh. If it don't fit, don't force it. You can grease it, make it easy. No way. Yes. Oh my God! Yes, and then it was replaced with "Tutti Fruity, Ah Rudy, Tutti Fruity, Ah Rudy." Um, and oh my God! There was like a, I found a documentary uh, by BBC on YouTube where uh, Chuck or um, Little Richard's drummer Charles Connor confirmed that it was "Tutti Fruity, Good Booty." If it's if it's tight, it's all right. If it's greasy, it makes it easy. Oh my um, God! Yeah, that was crazy. Had no idea of that. But um, so they. Look, uh, sorry. A lot of people call it that song just a wop, baba, loo, bop, a wop, bam, boom, because that's mm-hmm. what Little Richard, Little Richard's rendition of a drum pattern that he had imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, and this whole that that in itself became only uh, not only a model for Little Richard songs, but also a model for rock and roll itself. Mm-hmm. And this song introduced several of Rock's most characteristic musical features, including its loud volume, powerful vocal style, and distinctive beat and rhythm. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. That's cool. Very good. Tutti Fruity changed the world. And then on Tuesday, September 6, 1955, Hurricane Gladys makes landfall 140 miles south of Brownsville as a Category 1 hurricane with winds of 85 miles an hour. Vacationers evacuate Padre Island in preparation for the storm. And rainfall peaks at 17 inches in Flower Bluff. In Oso Bay, a storm surge is reported to have reached four and a half feet in height. And I guess it kind of affected Texas, too. Okay. September 10th, 1955 was a Saturday. Long-running U.S. TV series Gunsmoke. Is broadcast for the first time on the CBS TV network. God, that was on forever. Marshal Matt Dillon is in charge of Dodge City, a town in the Wild West where people often have no respect for the law. 
He deals on a daily basis with the problems associated with frontier life. Cattle rustling, gunfights, brawls, standover tactics, and land fraud. Such situations call for sound judgment and brave actions, of which Marshall Dillon has plenty. I think they focus a lot on the land fraud, because I, I remember being bored as hell whenever my dad would watch that. Yeah. It seems so boring. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It, it was on forever, and it was it's actually second place and longest running show with the most episodes and all that. I think. Do you want to guess what is first? Of, of what? Uh, show that oh, has the it's most seasons and most episodes. Mash. Nope. It's uh, something that's still on. Simpsons. Yep. Simpsons. Yes, Simpsons has been on for <laughs> it's been on since '87. My that's crazy. God, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and that brings us to September twelfth, nineteen fifty-five, when an American stage and screen Emmy award-winning actor was born. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. In Rochelle, New York. Okay. Uh. This guy described his father as a, not a buddy, but a boob, as an abusive, rageful man, and his mother as an alcoholic. Jeez. And it said that his, their marriage was tumultuous, and he didn't grow up in New Heart. He grew up in New Rochelle, New York. Oh, is Went it? to Edgemont High School in Scarsdale, New York. Bob Newhart? Colors are blue and white, home of the Panthers. No, this guy's unfortunately dead. But his dad was not a buddy, but a boob. I don't know why you're saying that. He was born in New Heart, but he was born in New <coughs> Rochelle. I don't know why you're saying Notable that. Notable alumni at his high school include Ben Schwartz and Paul Heyman. We're talking about Peter Scolari of New Heart and Bosom oh, Buddies fame. How would I get that? Rest in peace, Peter Scolari. From what who you else, were saying. Who else was on New Heart and Bosom Buddies? How am I supposed to know you're talking about Bosom Buddies from Boob? Boob buddy. Oh my god. He wasn't a buddy, he was a boob. And what? I mean, who else had such a tumultuous childhood other than Peter Scolari? Well, I don't know about that. Everyone knows about Peter Scolari's childhood. But a little known fact about Peter Scolari, I bet you didn't know this. He was an avid juggler. Remember at the beginning of Bosom Buddies when he's juggling like fruit? He actually showcased his talents on television, including a performance during the 1982 Circus of the Stars. Oh, God, remember those? I loved those. There was the Circus of the Stars, and then there was um, Battle of the Network Stars. Yes, kids, these days you have no idea yeah. what you missed out on. <laughs> like, all the sitcom stars that were on your favorite well, shows. Well, first of all, would dive. there was only four <laughs> channels. So That's everybody true. in America was watching the same show. Yeah, we all and knew the everybody same Everybody knew all the characters and all the shows, and it was like the only thing to talk about. So now you can name fourteen shows that you watch that nobody's nobody heard else of. has even heard of. Yeah. So yeah, it's crazy. It is. It's anyway. crazy how much there is. Also, that same day that Peter Scolari was born, we have another birthday. Hit the music. Amy, Amy hates American actress and MTV VJ was born in Springfield, Massachusetts. She was born Nina Kinkiner in Springfield, Massachusetts. Her father was in government service and also taught Sunday school. Uh, 
and she grew up on the west side of Cleveland, Ohio, attended Rocky River High School. She was in Playboy magazine. Her school colors were marine, white, maroon and white. I don't know who you're talking about. They're the Pirates. Notable alumni of her school include Pat McCormick, the fat guy with the mustache from Smoking the Bandit. Remember Smoking the Bandit? They had that two, the that fat guy. That is not a notable guy. alumni. <laughs> that is not a notable alumni. That's I'm very notable. Sorry. Anyway, she graduated in 1970. It's Nina Blackwood. Nina Blackwood, everybody. I don't know who that is. The blonde MTV VJ? I have no idea. You don't know the MTV VJs? No. Can you name any of them besides Nina Blackwood? I can name, like, the guy. And who? The, What's the guy? And that one chick, but I can't remember. J.J. Jackson? No, that's not who I'm thinking of. I don't remember their names. Alan Hunter? Mark Goodman? Mark Goodman. Remember him? Martha Quinn? Martha Quinn. I didn't have cable when, when they were on. <laughs> I wasn't a rich kid. I so wasn't I'm either. Sorry. You had more money than I did, bro. No, no, because I didn't have cable. I didn't know any. So how did you know all these VJs if you didn't have any cable? We did have cable. We See, just weren't I rich. I didn't have cable. We had nothing else. We didn't eat because cable was more important. <laughs> when I was in high school, my uh, my uh, history teacher gave us a quiz, and one of the bonuses on the quiz was name the original. Five original MTV VJs. And you got them. I got it good. That's the only reason I passed high school. My God. And Nina Blackwood was one of them. Anyway, she was in Playboy. I didn't know she was in Playboy. Now I got to look up that Playboy. She was in the August 1978 Playboy pictorial, The Girls in the Office. And she was a brunette, but she's known as a blonde on TV. So if you're into nudity, everybody, men and women, Mm -hmm. boys and girls, children, adults, everyone, appreciate the naked body of ladies. All right, let's move on here. Whoa. Anyway, um, a little bit more about Nina Blackwood. (laughs) I'm just kidding. No. Okay, September 4th, 1955, Herb Score, somebody named Herb Score, sets the rookie record of 235 strikeouts uh, in baseball. That's a bad thing. No, no, he's the pitcher. Oh, good. Yeah, sorry. Uh, But Herb Score, a little bit. I've never heard of Herb Score, so I was just checking around to see is he anybody... Yeah. Notable, and this poor guy, this American pitcher, mm-hmm. when he was three years old, he was run over by a truck, and then later had rheumatic fever. Jesus, poor guy. But then he became a. But as a teenager, he started playing basketball and baseball yeah. at Holy Name of Mary School until he moved in with his fa- moved with his family to Lake Worth, Florida, in 1952. He threw six no hitters for the Lake Worth Community High School baseball team, and then they knew he'd be great. So Herb Score. That's his name. Herb Score, everybody. Uh, September 19th, 1955 was a Monday. Hurricane Hilda kills about 200 people in Mexico. But this is American timelines, not North American timelines. Right. Because uh, that same day, on September 19th, in Sumner, Mississippi, USA, an all-white jury acquits both defendants in a trial for the murder of black teenager Emmett Till. That's right. Who we just did an extensive episode on. After a 67-minute deliberation, one juror says... If we hadn't stopped to drink pop, it wouldn't have taken that long. Mm-hmm. J.W. Milam later admits to shooting Till and says he and his fellow defendant, Roy Bryant, didn't think they had done anything wrong. No, they never regretted it. No, they didn't. They <clears throat> think it was okay. And um, I did connect a little bit late uh, to planning our last episode with a poet who has a book available on Amazon. Um, Amazon? Uh, Amazon.com. I don't know if I mentioned this in the other episode, but I was kind of upset that the top three books, when you look up Emmett Till and look for books on Amazon, the top three are written by a white man. So 
this one is not written by a white man. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got a hold of a poet mm-hmm. who wrote A Wreath for Emmett Till. It's a book of sonnets about Emmett Till, and I think everybody should purchase it. It's available on Amazon. I'll put a link to the book in our show description. Yeah. So everybody can buy it from her. And I met her. I had a brief Zoom call with her. She was very pleasant, very nice, uh, and she appreciated that we did this. I'm going to include a little clip right now of her reading some of her poetry. Her name is Marilyn Nelson. One night, five black men died on the same tree with toeless feet in this land of the free. This country we love has a Janus face. One mouth speaks with forked tongue, the other reads the Constitution. My country, tis of both thy nightmare history and thy grand dream, thy centuries of good and evil deeds I sing, thy fruited plain, thy undergrowth of mandrake, which flowers white as moonbeams. Indian pipe, bloodroot, white as moonbeams their flowers, picked One blackens and one bleeds a thick red sap. Indian pipe, a weed that thrives on rot, is held in disesteem, though it does have its use in nature's scheme, unlike the rose. The bloodroot poppy needs no explanation here. Its red sap pleads the case for its inclusion in the theme of a wreath for the memory of Emmett Till. Though the white poppy means forgetfulness. Who could forget when red sap on a reef recalls the brown boy five white monsters killed? Forgetting would call for consciencelessness, like the full moon which smiled calmly on his death. There you go. That was Marilyn Nelson. That's beautiful. Yeah, wasn't that good? A wreath for Emmett Till. That's good. September 23rd, 1955, mm-hmm. when James Dean first met Sir Alec Guinness, he asked him to take a look at his brand new Porsche Spider. Yeah. Guinness told James Dean, if you get in that car, you'll be found dead in it by this time next week. And he was. And the, that counter took place on September 23rd, 1955, and seven days before Dean's death. Allegedly. I don't know if that's true. I didn't. Uh, he probably didn't say the next week part. He, he probably, probably just said, yeah. oh, there's a death trap. Said, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Because it was a death trap of a car. You know, those little, they were like tin cans. Yeah. But Alleginis is Obi-Wan Kenobi. True. Um, and then on September 24th, 1955, I have a cool thing that happened on a Saturday. Um, this is from, I want to read you a little excerpt from. Uh, an article on OZ.com, mm-hmm. O-Z-Y. Uh, this is from an article called President Eisenhower's $14 billion heart attack by Sam Sean Braswell on OZ.com. It was a crisp Saturday afternoon in September 1955. The U.S. economy was booming. There were no major crises in the world, and the President of the United States, enjoying an approval rating of 79%, was on vacation. 
Then, on the eighth hole of the Cherry Hills Country Golf Club course, just outside Denver, Dwight D. Eisenhower, 64, started complaining of indigestion, which he attributed to the hamburger with Bermuda onions he had wolfed down between his morning and afternoon games. But just 24 hours later, the American people were informed that their war hero president was in an oxygen tent at Fitzsimmons Army Hospital being treated by one of the best cardiologists in the country. And another 24 hours later, on September 26th, the bull market that had seen stocks triple on Wall Street in the previous seven years went into a tailspin. Mm -hmm. The Dow Jones plummeted over 6% and lost $14 billion in value by the end of what would prove to be the worst single day for markets since the start of World War II. Eisenhower's heart attack, however, was just one in a series of major illnesses a seemingly invincible leader would experience during his presidency. So Dr. Howard Snyder, his personal physician, had misdiagnosed the symptoms as indigestion and failed to call, call in the help that was urgently needed. Mm. And apparently, Dr. Howard Snyder later falsified his own records to cover his blunder and to protect Eisenhower's need to portray his he was healthy enough to do his job. Yeah, Eisenhower was a good president. Yeah. So the heart attack required six weeks hospitalization, during which time Nixon... Uh, and some others assumed administrative duties and provided communication with the president. He was treated by Dr. Paul Dudley White, a cardiologist with a national reputation, who regularly informed the press of the president's progress. Instead of eliminating him as a candidate for a second term as president, though, his physician recommended a second term as essential to his recovery. Yeah. So, I don't know why, but... Um, so, there you go. All right. And then on September 25th, 1955, a lady, have you ever heard of a gal named Emma Rowena Gatewood? I have not. She was born Emma Rowena Caldwell, but she's known as Grandma Gatewood. She was born October 25th, 1887, to a family of 15 children. My God. In Guyon Township in Galea County, Ohio, which is right by the West Virginia border. Mm -hmm. Her father, Hugh Caldwell, was a farmer who turned to a life of drinking and gambling after his leg was amputated in the Civil War. Yikes. Right? That's how old she, this yeah. person is. Okay? The child-rearing of the family was then left to her mother, Evelyn Caldwell. Emma and her siblings slept four to a bed in their log cabin. Four people in a bed. Imagine that. So yeah. her formal education ended with the eighth grade, but she enjoyed reading encyclopedias and the Greek classics and taught herself about wildlife and woodland plants that could be used as medicines and food. So she knew a little something about that. Mm -hmm. And she also enjoyed writing poetry. And on May 15th, 1907, at the age of 19, she married a 27-year-old Perry Clayton Gatewood, P.C. Gatewood, mm -hmm. who was a primary school teacher and later a tobacco farmer. And they had 11 children of their own. Almost immediately, though, her husband set her to work burning tobacco beds and building fences and mixing cement in addition to her expected housework duties and raising all those kids. Mm -hmm. And PC had a mean streak. Within months of the wedding, he started to beat his wife. Oh, no. A vicious pattern that continued for the duration of their marriage. In 1924, though, he was convicted of manslaughter after killing a man during an argument. He was ordered to pay restitution to the widow of the victim, but his prison sentence was suspended because of his nine children and his farm to take care of. Oh, Emma recalled being beaten nearly to death on several occasions by her husband. When her husband became violent, she would often run into the woods where she found peace and solitude. So the woods was like her happy place. Mm -hmm. 
1939, after yet another violent fight, PC arranged to have his wife arrested and jailed. But seeing her with broken teeth and cracked, a cracked rib, the town mayor took her in and found her a job. And then she filed for divorce in September of 1940. And in February of 1941, she testified against that bastard in a hearing that resulted in the divorce being granted. Oh, good. Uh, giving her custody of the three children still at home and with alimony be to be paid by PC. This was at a time when divorce was difficult. It didn't yeah. Much. Uh, and and also after this time, he had repeatedly threatened to have her committed to an insane asylum. That's what people did back maintain then. Maintain control over. Her. Yeah, mm -hmm. I guess that's common. Yeah. Yeah. It's awful. Um, so in the early 50s, while reading a discarded copy of the August 1949 edition of National Geographic magazine, Granny Gatewood found an article about the Appalachian Trail. The description of the photographs captivated her, made it sound like that's something she could do. She could, it seemed, based on these books and pictures, mm -hmm. an easy thing to to hike the whole thing. Yeah. So she set out in July of 1954 at the age of 66 years old oh to God. hike south from Mount Catadin in Maine. I don't know if that's how you say it. But after a few days, she got lost and broke her glasses and ran out of food. The rangers, oh, Jesus. The rangers who found her convinced her to return home, but she decided not to tell anybody about her failure. The following year, at the age of 67, Gatewood told her grown children that she was going for a walk, and they didn't even ask where or how long. They knew she was resilient and could take care of herself. This time, she started earlier in the year and walked north from Mount Oglethorpe in Georgia, beginning on May 3rd, 1955, and ending 146 days later. Oh, my God. Walking for 146 days. Can oh. you imagine that? And 2,168 miles later, oh on September God. 25th Holy at Mount Catadin. At the top of Baxter Peak, she signed the register. So saying, she, she walked from... Georgia to where? Maine. No way. Yeah. Jesus. In 1955. Oh, my God. And she was 67 years old. It's insane. At the top of Baxter Peak, at the end, she signed the register, sang the first verse of the song, America the Beautiful, and spoke out loud, I did it. I said I'd do it, and I've done it. So there was a National Geographic magazine article. Oh, because that National Geographic magazine article that she read that I was talking about earlier, yeah. uh, had given her the impression of easy walks and clean cabins at the end of each day's expedition. She took little in the way of outdoor gear. She didn't take a tent oh or a sleeping God. bag. She just took a shower curtain to keep the rain off, and she wore canvas Keds shoes on her misshapen feet and carried a small notebook, some clothes, and food in a homemade denim bag slung over one shoulder. When she couldn't find shelter, she slept on piles of leaves. On cold nights, she heated large flat stones to use as a warm bed. When she ran out of food, she ate berries and other edible forest plants she recognized. Oh, my God. So all she had was a notebook. <laughs> like, Jeez. She all the stuff we need now. Like, I, I can't go anywhere without, that. like, a phone and a TV. You know, of course. Wi-Fi. Oh, yeah. Uh, local newspapers began picking up on her story in late June. You know, she started in May and ended in September. In late June... Uh, and beginning in Virginia with an article in the Roanoke Times. Mm -hmm. Then the AP did a national profile of her while she was in Maryland, leading to an article in Sports Illustrated when she reached Connecticut. This publicity made her a celebrity even before the hike was over. She often recognized and received trail magic that they call assistance from strangers in the form of friends, food, and places to sleep. After the hike, Sports Illustrated ran a follow-up article describing her experiences on the trail, and she was quoted as saying that based on the National Geographic article's rosy description she thought it'd be a nice lark it wasn't 
she continued. This is no trail. This is a nightmare. Yeah. For some fool reason, they always lead you right up over the biggest rock to the top of the biggest mountain they can find. <laughs> uh, newspapers across the U.S. included the Baltimore Sun, had articles about the jovial little grandmother who conquered the Appalachian Trail. In addition, she was invited as a featured guest on the news and talk television program The Today Show with Dave Garraway, and she won $200 on the televised quiz show Welcome Travelers. All right. And checking back in with Calhoun Jack, let's see what he has to say about Granny Gatewood. I think that's impressive, and that definitely, if I think that definitely spiked up women's rights a lot. So after a long, difficult life as a farm wife, mother of 11 children, and survivor of domestic violence, she became famous as the first solo female thru-hiker of the 2,168-mile Appalachian Trail in 1955, age of 67. Pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. In the following day that she finished that, America's mm-hmm. sweethearts, showbiz couple Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds got married. Oh, Doomed. And they would divorce within four years. Yep, because uh, he, he cheated on her she, with Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, so you know all the things. Yeah, I know all the dirt. You know the dirt, yep. And But they did have a child named Princess Leia. Mm-hmm. That's so right. So we have, we have Obi-Wan Kenobi and Princess Leia in this episode. True. <coughs> this is a nerd podcast. You're trying to make it one. I did. I went to Heroes Con. That, that's why you have that pocket protector weekend. on. Yeah, I went to Heroes Con. I went to a nerd, my first nerd convention. As right. part of the Nerd School podcast, the, our sister podcast. Anyway, and that brings us to September 30th, 1955, when the celebrity car death is James Dean. Mm, man. So, I don't know if you knew that he had an auto racing hobby. Yeah. So, 1954, he became interested in uh, developing a career in motorsport. Um, and he purchased various vehicles uh, to, you know, race and stuff. And then he started racing, actually, before this. Mm-hmm. Um just before filming Beyond Rebel Without a Cause, he competed in his first professional event at the Palm Springs Road Races, held in Palm Springs, California, uh, in March of 1955. And uh, he achieved first place in the novice class and second place at the main event. Not too so shabby. He was racing for a while, and then the, some of the movie companies said, hey, no, you you can't. Uh, you know, is they barred him from all racing during the production of a movie called Giant. Yep. Um, did you see that movie? That's the one with Elizabeth Taylor. I oh, think. it is. Yeah. Anyway, so once he finished the movie, shooting it, he started racing again, and so he was on his way actually to a race when this crash happened. So at the interstate intersection of State Route Forty Six and State Route Forty One, which is renamed James Dean Memorial Junction, but actually the accident actually happened a hundred feet to the south of that due to road realignment. It, he he was planning on going back to racing. He traded in one of his speedsters for a new, more powerful and faster 1955 Porsche 550 Spider, and entered the upcoming Salinas Road Race event scheduled for October 1st and 2nd, 1955. Mm-hmm. And accompanying him on his way to the track, uh, it was like a five-hour drive from L.A., on September 30th was stunt coordinator Bill Hickman, Collier's photographer San- Sanford Roth, Colliers are those magazines we have above the couch. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you have pictures of those those covers, right? Yep. And Rolf Wuthrich, the German mechanic from the Porsche factory who maintained Dean's Spider, which he called Little Bastard. Uh, anyway, on the way there, 
Uh, at 3.30 p.m., Dean was ticketed for speeding, as was Hickman, who was following behind another car. As the group was driving westbound on U.S. Route 466, currently State Route 46, near Shalom, California. Shalom. Shalom. I think Shalong. Shalong. Shalong, California. Big, I don't think that's what it is. Big hairy Shalong, California. I don't think that's what it is. But at approximately 5.45 p.m., a 1950 Ford Tudor driven by 23-year-old Cal Poly student Donald Turnipseed was traveling east. Turnipseed made a left turn on the Highway 41 headed north toward Fresno ahead of the oncoming Porsche. Dean, unable to stop in time, slammed into the passenger side of the Ford, resulting in Dean's car bouncing across the pavement onto the side of the highway. Dean's passenger, Wuthrich, was thrown from the Porsche while Dean was trapped in the car and sustained numerous fatal injuries, including a broken neck. Turnipseed ah. exited his damaged vehicle with minor injuries. And he probably had a seatbelt on or something, and the other two I don't other know if they even didn't. had seatbelts then. Yeah, that's true. Did they? I mean, I, I don't, don't know. know. I don't I know don't when know. The, the law... The law wasn't until much later, but... Well, the accident was witnessed <laughs> by a number of passers-by who stopped to help. Dean's biographer, George Perry, wrote that a woman with nursing experience attended to Dean and detected a weak pulse, but he also contrarily wrote that death appeared to have been instantaneous, so I'm not sure. Okay. Jury's out. Yeah. Dean was pronounced dead on arrival shortly after he arrived by ambulance to the, at the Paso Robles War Memorial Hospital at 6.20 p.m. Though initially slow to reach newspapers in eastern United States, details of Dean's death rapidly spread via radio and television. By October 2nd, his death had received significant coverage from domestic and foreign media outlets. It was just such a shock, I bet. I mean, because he was so James young. Dean, super actor, yeah. Yeah. He was super popular, right? Mm-hmm. His funeral was held on October 8th, 1955 at the Fairmount Friends Church in Fairmount, Indiana. The coffin remained closed to conceal his severe injuries. An estimated 600 mourners were in attendance, while another 2,400 fans gathered outside of the building during the procession. Turnipseed was innocent of any criminal God, acts. What kind of name is Turnipseed? Turnipseed, Donald Turnipseed. You know, maybe he changed like his name to Donald Trump to hide it. It sounds like a Disney fairy or something would be named. Yep. Anyway, that guy was a pretty successful guy in his own right, I guess. October 1st, 1955, Jackie Gleason's sitcom The Honeymooners debuts on CBS. Nice. Replacing his variety series. All right. Production ends Wait. after just 39 episodes. Oh, really? It was that short? Yeah. I really didn't know that. Isn't that weird? Mm-hmm. Then October 3rd, Captain Kangaroo premieres on CBS. Oh, I, I loved that show when I was a kid. Good morning, Captain. Yeah, Mr. Green Remember Jeans. Remember Mr. Green Jeans and... and uh, the puppets that he had, the moose. That moose. I wanted that moose. And there's Octo- always the ping pong balls that would always fall from the ceiling. All over everything. Yep. October 3rd, that same day, Mickey Mouse Club premiered. The same time as Captain Kangaroo. Oh. Captain Kangaroo, I do feel like, like by the 70s, like he was like lame. You, you know, think? Yeah. I mean, and then now if you look back and watch him, like... Seems a little creepy. Like, oh, stop! The way his haircut, like that, doesn't make him creepy. It's a, that was the hairstyle. That was the style of the time. Yeah, but for him, like he shouldn't have been talking to children. He just seems. Oh my god! And then October fourth, it was the baseball World Series. The Brooklyn Dodgers win their first World Series with a two-zip victory against arch-rival New York Yankees at Yankee Stadium in Game Seven. The MVP was Brooklyn pitcher Johnny Padres. All right. You want more World no Series information? No more of that. <clears throat> plenty of that. October 15, 1955, Buddy Holly opens for Bill Haley and his comments in Lubbock, Texas, mm-hmm. and impresses Nashville scout Eddie Crandall, leading to a recording contract with a misspelling that creates 
Buddy Holly. He was Buddy H O L L E Y originally. Oh, and they, they misspelled it. it. Yeah, so that's how, and then he kept it. October 18th, track and field names Jesse Owens, all time track athlete. And then October 27th, Rebel Without a Cause, directed by Nicholas Ray, starring James Dean and Natalie Wood, is released. After he Posthumously. died. Posthumously, yeah. yeah. I didn't realize that was released after he died. Yeah. Until I figured out the timeline at all. But yeah, so there you go. And that brings us to October 30th, 1955, when a businessman and horse breeder, William Woodward Jr., has a little trouble. Yes. Right? I'm going to tell the story of Ann and Billy Woodward. Okay. Ann Cromwell. This is... Billy Woodward, huh? Yet another... Excuse me. This is yet another episode of A Crime to Remember, so... Oh, so from now, our our podcast has just basically become... Uh, me telling you an of episode a, of A Crime to Remember. A Crime to Remember. So, so that show, you give props to that show? You like that show? I, I do. It's a very good show. Okay. I, I would say they do a good job. There is reenactments on it, which it's not my favorite way to do it, but since yeah. it's a period show... Oh, you, it's about menstrual cycles? No, or? it's... It's all crimes from like that this time joke. period. That's a dumb joke. Yeah. Okay. Um, what uh, channel can you see that on? Is it's ID. ID yeah, Investigation Discovery. Okay. I see it on YouTube TV. I think it is. Well, well, YouTube TV has all the channels. I mean, it's a cable network oh. now. So, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm hunting fork. Yeah, <laughs> you don't understand. No, either. I don't yeah. get it. So, YouTube TV is a subscription we have. It's like a cable service. Kind all of, right. But it's so on then. The internet. That was a dumb thing to say. All right. No, that's okay. You don't know. Why would you know? Who cares? So the beginning of the show, a fabulous estate on the Gold Coast of Long Island, 1955. Okay. The biggest scandal ever in New York society. Just hours after dining with the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, Anne Woodward came home and shot her husband Billy in the face. Oh, so she's a big Accidentally, or so she said. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, do you wow. know anything about this story? I don't know okay. anything except that he's a horse breeder. So, but I, so she's famous. Yeah, these she, are famous. They were people? socialites. Okay. So it's this is Oyster Bay, New York, is is where this takes place okay. specifically. And Oyster Bay, New York. So police arrive. They find Mrs. Woodward cradling a badly injured Mr. Woodward in the hallway of their mansion. Oh. She's on the floor on top of her husband, like holding him. Okay. Uh, the police and officer like upset who was and crying and yeah stuff? okay and the and she got blood all over her Jeez. and the police officer's not sure what to do and then he sees all he looks over and he sees all these pills on her nightstand so that's kind of like what's going what on and the place there? was a shambles and yeah. she's just sobbing hysterically so um, she did you say the place was a shambles or yeah, in shambles I said it was a shambles okay just checking okay. She claimed that she heard a burglar or an intruder get into the house and shot, thinking she was shooting the intruder. Oh, so she was home alone and he walked in type of thing? Well, I'll get to it. Okay, you'll get to it. it. Okay, Okay, so the police, she's still kind of, that's all they can really get from her at this point. So they search the premises. The dog's barking. There's bullet fragments on the wall. Ann and Billy had separate bedrooms okay. on either side of an 18-foot hallway. And that's probably normal for rich people uh, in the 50s? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in front of Ann's door was a custom-made shotgun laying there, and the body of Billy Woodward lay in front of his bedroom riddled with buckshot. Oof. So according to the caretaker, 
A little after 2 a.m., they heard shots fired. There were some things disturbed in the kitchen. There was broken dishes and things. Okay. And although the couple had plenty of guns, only the one lying on the floor had been fired. So Ann Woodward finally calms down enough to be questioned. She said she shot her husband accidentally in the dark hallway when she thought there was an intruder. Okay. Now, this part, it starts to kind of ping pong back and forth between this current situation that's going on and then back to back in time to like now we're going to go back in to what who ann woodward is a little bit okay so she came from a poor beginning she came from a poor kansas town she moved 11 times as a child Ooh, that's tough on you yeah her mother ended up running a taxi cab company in the back of this movie theater and when ann was little they called her angie which is short for angeline okay her mother said she always wanted to better herself as she got older, she became more beautiful. She wanted to make it big, just like her idol, Joan Crawford. Oh. She, so she gets a job at a very exclusive department store modeling and selling hats. There was a buyer who came through and told her to look him up if she ever came to New York. And that was her way out. Yeah. So in New York City in the 1940s, the elite started spending more time out and about in cafe society. And it made it easier for regular folks to be able to meet them. Okay. And Anne would go out, and she would get all dolled up and look very elegant. So she decided to change her name to Anne Eaton, and that's what she went by. That was her name. Yeah. So she like her stage name type of name. Yeah. She loved flash and glamour. She wanted to become one of the beautiful people. Okay. So Anne met Billy at Fifi's Club Monte Carlo. And oh, that sounds fancy. Yeah. Back then, the Woodwards were the height of the social pyramid. They made a lot of money selling cotton to the Southern troops during the Civil War. So they made their money off the back of slave labor. Yeah. Labor. Uh, they then bought an interest in Hanover Bank making a fortune. Before Anne met Billy, she caught the attention of his dad, Mr. Woodward Sr. Okay. She was very attractive and very warm, and all the men wanted to sit by her. So he invited her to see his horses. She went. She went. So she goes to his place. Yeah. To see his horses. To see the, the old man, the dad. The, the dad, yeah. yeah. But yeah. she's very coy about him, and it's unclear what all happened when, when she went to see his horses. Yeah. But Woodward Sr. was discreet. And then when she met Billy at the club, he had no idea that she'd been involved with his dad. Billy Ooh, didn't. Weird. So Billy was a sexually inexperienced youth. Okay. Anne would dance with Billy and say suggestive things about the body language and the movement, and she would flirt with him. It was very sexual, very fast. Okay. She was more than ready to handle Billy's desires. And she had no idea his death would be by her hand, too. Ooh. Or did she? Or did she? Yep. So she was forthright about the fact that she had fired the deadly shot. Now we're back in the... We're uh, back in the current back in current. And they are married, right? They're, They're married, married, yeah. Okay. There was no question about that. The question was, did she murder her husband? So the 1950s, in some ways, were similar to today. When wealthy people commit a crime, everyone pays attention. Yeah. So when Ann Woodward shot her husband, Billy, the police were very nervous. The police... Because they knew all eyes would be on this. Right. And they up there were mostly caretakers. They didn't really know how to handle crime. Yeah. Because it was a real rich area. All the Woodward's people, like all the lawyers and everything, were quick to arrive. They had such influence and power that they could afford the top lawyers in New York who did everything they could to block the press from knowing anything. Okay. So the chief of police, the district attorney, and all these sort of brass who never go to crime scenes are there. Yeah. Anne was sedated and given a chance to compose herself. Oh, God. 
So how did, now we're going to go back in time again, how did Angeline Cromwell become someone's wife as opposed to a plaything? It had been over Elsie Woodward's practically dead body. (laughs) Elsie Woodward, who is Billy's mom. Oh, Billy's mom. Was a very powerful socialite in New York. Okay. When she met Anne, she hated her right away. Uh And she felt she was beneath her class. Everything was stay, what did they keep saying? They kept saying um, S-I-Y-C or something. Stay in your class. Stay in your class, dear. They kept saying that to her. They kept saying that to her. And she was like perceived as lower class. Lower class. Yeah, by by this mom. So um, marriage was the only way that someone like Anne could make it in that world. But the Woodwards were horrified and warned Billy not to marry a woman like Anne. Yeah. Elsie wanted more for Billy, but they were very much in love. Billy loved how different Anne was from the world he came from. And she thought all her dreams had come true. A girl from. Rural Kansas Rural. <laughs> comes to New York and marries one of the most eligible bachelors there. So now, back to the night of the murder. They end up taking Anne out of the house on a stretcher, and she puts like a cloth over her face because the press is already there. Yeah. Uh, they knew they transported to Doctor's Hospital in New York. Um, and you know, an ordinary woman who was not a socialite would have been cuffed and drug out of there. Yeah. Probably. Uh, but if you look back, it seems trouble for them started well before the shooting. Okay. Anne was sensitive, and she didn't feel like she was accepted by some of the family. Of course. And she perhaps tried too hard. Mm. So she was playing a role as Billy's wife. Okay. But the harder she worked at fitting in, the less time she had for Billy. He had been imagining a never-ending honeymoon with his extremely desirable wife who had taken him places he'd never imagined going in the sexually repressed world. Hell yeah. Once Anne was married, though, she was more focused on becoming more respectable than being a playmate. Isn't that always how it is? She starts to conform. She starts to want the approval of his mother and sisters over the approval of Billy. That poor thing. And and there it, there was even a part where Truman Capote, yeah. who at this time was writing Breakfast at Tiffany's, yeah. he was invited to every party, and whenever he saw Ann Woodward, he, he saw her as, in his words, a phony, and he despised really? that about people. He was like fakes. Mm-hmm. So just a few years later, the Woodwards had two children, two boys, the heir and a spare, they okay. called it. And a certain point, at a, at a certain point, Billy looked at Ann and thought, who are we? How did we ever get together? We come from two completely different worlds. Yeah. These two differences would matter, let alone become a problem, may not have occurred to Billy early well, on. we all know how you got together. She was super hot. Yeah, but there was one person who believed that Anne should have never been allowed into their world, Elsie. The, the mom. Yeah. yeah. So Elsie finds out about Billy being shot the next morning. Okay. And she's just totally grief-stricken. She decided Anne had to be guilty of murder. Yeah. Well, she already didn't like her. Right. So, Anne may have been whisked away from all the drama that night, but that didn't stop the Oyster Bay police from asking questions about her strange story. It was time to figure out what really happened. Anne's story could have been true. Maybe there was a prowler around. There were rumors and a few sightings. There was a young man who had been arrested once prowling the neighborhood, breaking into people's houses and just stealing food and cutlery and jewelry. The house staff showed police how someone would get into the house if they wanted to. The caretaker also told police about what Billy found on the grounds just the day before. Open cans of food were strewn across the ground. They decided that the prowler had been in the pool cabana and had been letting himself in the kitchen. Oh, that was just a day prior. Yeah. So. Yeah. They think there's an intruder that's been coming around. Yeah. Okay. 
And then, well, they know they have, yeah. supposedly. Right. So this could be an intruder. So then later that night, they went to a nearby house for a, for dinner that was being held in honor of the Duchess of Windsor, who was Anne's good friend. Oh, wow. Fancy. The police interviewed a lot of the people who had been at the dinner party, asking them if the couple seemed normal. Yeah. Were they on edge? Were they arguing? Was there any kind of animosity? Was somebody drunk? Several people mentioned that Anne told them about the prowler, yeah. that it was all she talked about. Yeah. So she was already on edge and scared. The partygoers gave some credence to Anne's story about a prowler, but there was a lot they'd left out about the sordid business that had become the Woodward's marriage. Billy had started having affairs. Uh-oh. Marlena Torlinia. No, Marlena Torlinia, for Marlena Torlinia. Torlini. She was very good-looking. Half, a half-Italian princess, half-Connecticut wasp. Oh, from the Tortellini Empire. She was a much more suitable partner for him, so he gravitated towards her. Yeah. She was crazy about Billy, too. She wanted to marry him. Oh, boy. Anne became aware of the affair. Billy didn't try to hide it, but if she divorced him, it would take away everything she had clawed her way toward. So he didn't even hide it because nope. he knew. That her sucks. identity, her belonging as Mrs. Ann Woodward, she was feeling increasingly desperate. Poor thing. So Ann may have had reasons to pull the trigger, but she also had an innocent explanation. She had feared for her family's safety from a mysterious prowler. Now, the police had arrested a prowler months earlier. Had this man broken into Ann's house? We he, don't know. He was out on probation, so police track him down and question him, and he has an alibi. Okay. So at this point, things are looking pretty bad for Ann. She couldn't prove anything. All she could do was wait. Locked away in her hospital room as if things seemed dark, they were about to get much darker with the arrival of the person who hated Ann the most. Well, think about LC. this, too. She's locked away. She can't do anything. Her husband's cheating on her. There's no Netflix or Disney+. Plus. I know. She can't even watch the MCU so it had been a little over three weeks since Anne Woodward shot her husband, Billy. Yeah. The press was running wild with speculation, and until this point, the family had remained silent. But like it or not, a grand jury was about to make it public, and soon. You know, every, everywhere there's people running around with those hat fedoras with press yep. sticking out of it. That's right. Say, see, say. Elsie disliked Anne intensely and was quite sure she had killed Billy on purpose. Yeah. Elsie did not want her grandchildren to have a mother who murdered their father. Well, nobody wants that. That would have been be the fair. ultimate scandal. Which is all the biggest, of course, that's the most important thing. That's all he cares about, yeah. what people think, yep. and if it's a scandal, not anything real. So Elsie made a decision to send the boys to school in Switzerland. Okay. She played along with Anne's story to her face, like, okay, it was an accident, I got it. Like, she would, to yeah. her face. She, oh, she pretended that she wasn't. She pretended yeah, like yeah. She, she believed like, her. Yeah. She knew what a scandal could do, and she had a pretty good idea of the shadows that lurked in her son's marriage. She did send private detectives all over the place afterwards and yeah. couldn't get anything on Anne, but she got an enormous amount of data about Billy. Anne and Billy's marriage was in shambles. Separation papers had been drawn up, but Billy hadn't signed them yet. However, far he strayed, he couldn't tear himself away from Anne completely, but he okay. wouldn't love her anymore either. Oh. So they would go to parties, get loaded, and cause a scene all the time. Really? Yes. And they but argued not, constantly. <coughs> so, if they argued constantly, and they would do this all the time, yeah, it wouldn't have been out of the ordinary for them to do it at this party the night he dies. Right. Right? Right. And he'd, um, he'd smack her around sometimes. Oops. Shit. Sorry. What's happening? I'm trying to pull up my head. Sorry. Go ahead. Yep. He'd smack her around sometimes. And uh, they would fight at costume parties, in a German castle, big public scenes. It's well documented that, that they had these big scenes. They were tumultuous and he, everybody knew. But the night before, the night of, they didn't? Nobody said that they were Well, fighting? hold on. Oh, I'll okay, get there. Okay. So he made a point of keeping her off balance. He made a point of keeping her upset. 
and he was always withholding her his appreciation of her. Okay. She was obsessed with keeping him. She knew that he would beat her up and slap her around, then end up having sex with her, and that's how she lived. That's the only way she could get some action, huh? Anne was really starting to fall apart, drinking and taking pills. Yeah, that's what a shitty What was seen existence. in public was so bad that one could only imagine what was going on behind closed doors. Poor thing. Oh, I got... Hold got on. Got messed up? Yeah, because it, like, jumped around. Okay, in November 1955... Anne was sent before a grand jury. She gave testimony that she loved her husband, and it was an accident because she thought he was the prowler that had been in their home before. There was a surprise witness who came forward to say they knew what really happened. Uh Uh-oh, a surprise witness? I always love surprise witnesses. From the beginning, Anne had stated that she had mistaken Billy for a prowler, but when police had caught the prowler, he denied he was there. And now it was his turn to tell the world what really happened that night. The prowler's first story was that he wasn't on the estate. Then he changed his story. He testified that that night he climbed a tree and entered the home through a second-story window. While doing so, he knocked something over, which caused a crash. Yeah. This startled Mrs. Woodward awake. Yeah. As he was descending the stairs. it really was the prowler. Yeah. Okay. As he was descending the stairs, he heard a shot, then another shot. Then he got out of there, jumped off the roof, and ran. Wow. Now, it was unclear if the prowler had changed his story because he was being honest or if it was because he made the whole thing up. There were whispers that Elsie had made it worth the young man's while to confess. Oh, whoa, with a boob, a little side boob. Anne was cleared very quickly. Oh, wait, Elsie. The mom. Wait, she? Because it's such a scandal, she wants it to go away. Oh, she, okay, I would say, I thought she wants her to be caught, but no, she doesn't. Okay, because it's a scandal. But even if, here's where I'm a little confused, like, even if the prowler wasn't there that day, uh, it doesn't. Well, she could still have thought he was a prowler, right? Yeah, I thought we had a prowler the other night in our house, and right. it was Henry ba- right. knocking on the floor, well, and I about jumped in your cousin's arms. Yeah, he almost shot shot my cousin. Uh, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, I mean, there's some. They have to prove that. Oh, they don't have proof that the prowler was in there, but you could still know that there's been a prowler. Well, the truth is, they had been talking about the prowler all night at the dinner party. Yeah. Then so they, she was worried about it. Then they got home, and they were good and liquored, and they found a glass that wasn't there when they left. So they each got a gun and searched the house. Okay, so they were actually both actively looking for him. Yeah. Anne takes the rifle to bed with her, and Billy takes a gun to bed with him, too. Remember, they yeah, had separate, separate beds. beds. Yeah. He apparently went to take a shower then. Then Anne couldn't sleep, so she takes all these pills. Yeah. And then she goes to bed. Then she hears the prowler fall in the upstairs curtains at the same moment. She's she hopped heard the up noise on goofballs and... And they each rush into the darkened hall at opposite ends. Yeah, and she's hopped up on goofballs. Then what happens next is anyone's guess. She was in an abusive relationship. It could have been a Freudian mistake. Oh, gosh, Anne I never even thought about Freud. A deep depression after the trial. She, she went did. abroad and tried to make her way there. She was pretty much criticized... No, ostracized from her husband's world. Several years later, when Truman Capote decided to write about the Woodwards, he gave Esquire magazine a chapter, and somebody, friend or enemy, sent Anne an an advance copy. She was devastated. He really depicted Anne as a gold-digging whore. She had no future once the story's published. What What had happened before was mild compared to what will come. She has the date that the story is supposed to come out marked in her date book. The night before... 
Anne wrote her last words on a notepad by her bed, took the too many pills, and died by suicide. Oh. Anne wanted to be famous, to be rich, to be in high society. She got all of that and ended up being destroyed by it. That's it. That's what they say. Careful what you wish for. If you want fame and That's right. money, it comes with a price. It comes with a price. That's right, baby. And that's the story of Anne and Billy Woodward. Wow. The murder or the death of Billy it makes Woodward. me not want to be rich and famous. I just want to be anonymous and watch Disney Plus and Netflix all day and get hopped up on Google. Well, the fact that there was was a prowler in their house, you know. Yeah, I mean there there had been you even got if firearms, like, even if he wasn't there that yeah. day, even if he had been, it yeah. would be make sense why she would. Be, be jumpy, mm-hmm. especially if she's hopped up on goofballs. Yeah, right. Right. She, she was hopped up on goofballs. Big time. Will, big you, will you say hopped up on goofballs? Goofballs. Okay. Uh, yeah. Thanks. That was really good. That was very well told. I like the jumping around a little bit. Okay. I kind of like the filling in bits by bits. So that's kind of fun. Fun. Fun little storytelling. Fun little rehash uh, of a t- television program. Tactic, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Yes. We are. I don't know how to say this other than just to say we are in love with you, people. Yeah, you people that listen, we love you. Thank like, you for listening. We care about you. We would brush your hair if if we saw you. We would braid your pubes on the street. Yeah, we would braid your pubes if you have them. Um, if you don't, no judgment. And if you're open to that, but not if you, we won't do it against your will. No. Right. Never braid someone's pubes. No, of course not. So thanks for listening. Uh, Shout out to Sebastian from Magic Mind. He's a good pal. Anyway, uh, we love you guys. And keep listening. It's time to get out of here, Chuck Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry, get out of here. Hit it, Matt Truman Ego Trip, the very greatest band in the world. Check out Matt Truman Ego Trip for live dates. Check out their website. They played the Village Idiot in Maumee, Ohio a lot. They're awesome. That place is a great place. It's just pizza. Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Buy their music.